Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm John Priddo here from The Economist. On Mondays, we talk with you about the first hundred days of the Trump administration, what this moment means for the rest of the world, and how the country seems to outsiders right now. Tonight, we're talking about Russia. NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers and FBI Director James Comey testified before the House Intelligence Committee on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election earlier today. And it was remarkable. The FBI doesn't normally comment on ongoing investigations, particularly when there's, a classified, when there's classified information involved. But today they did. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Just let that sink in for a moment. The FBI is investigating whether the sitting president's campaign worked with the Russian government. That investigation, Mr Comey confirmed, has been underway for months. He was also pressed on whether there was any evidence for the allegations President Trump made against Barack Obama on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, namely that President Obama had tapped his phone. With respect to the president's tweets about alleged wiretapping directed at him by the prior administration, I have no information that supports those tweets, and we have looked carefully inside the FBI. The Department of Justice has asked me to share with you that the answer is the same for the Department of Justice and all its components. The department has no information that supports those tweets. Listen carefully to that sound. That's as close as an FBI FBI director gets to saying that the president is full of it. (laughs) And so we will have to see whether or not people heard it that way. It's a big news day, and we're going to hash out what happened in those in those hearings. And then later in the show, we're also going to talk about something that didn't come up, which is the broader relationship between Russia and the far right, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And throughout all of this, we want to hear from you. Did you hear it? How invested are you in the outcome of the FBI's investigation into how the Russians intervened in our election? What is it you want to know? And why? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And that last part is particularly important. Why? What would change for you if you got your question answered? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or you can tweet us using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And we're joined by Karen Demergen, who's a political reporter for The Washington Post. Karen, your paper got quite a lot of publicity during the, the hearing today. There were <laughs> various moments when Republican representatives were reading out various Post stories in a kind of indignant fashion. But you were, you were at the hearing today and you've been covering all the kind of twists and turns in this story. Welcome to Indivisible, first off. 
Good to be with you. Um, you've been following this so closely. Um, for people who haven't been following it as closely as you have, you know, today this hearing seemed completely extraordinary. But is there anything that you learned from it that you didn't know already? Well, I mean, first of all, it is rather extraordinary. As you pointed out, it's not every day that you have the FBI director saying, hey, we are doing this counterintelligence-style investigation that does involve potentially the sitting president. That's not a, a normal thing. Um, I think that, 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 that Comey saying that on the record was a, an important step because he has been uh, loath to actually get to that point, even though we've reported, other outlets have reported that there are investigations ongoing at the FBI. To have him actually say that is is uh, a real marker. Um, I think that we, it's interesting that we heard that. It is interesting that we heard him, as again, as you already pointed out, um, say there's no there there on Trump's allegations that the Obama administration tapped his phones in Trump Tower. But I think it's also interesting to what we didn't learn because there are still a number of open questions. As much as we feel like we got major resolution on two points, it doesn't do anything to end this investigation. We got Comey to say things that in a way we had already seen in news reports from members of Congress saying um, basically what their full assessment was based on documents that they had seen. So it was confirmation of stuff that we almost completely knew. Um, What we don't yet know is whether this wiretapping, I mean, the wiretapping allegations that Comey and Rogers debunked are only about as far as Trump tweeted about. We don't know if there are wiretaps that extend to other business associates or friends or family members that were outside of Trump Tower. We don't know if maybe somebody else from the greater Trump team or network was picked up in what's called incidental collection, which is when there's a wiretap focused on someone else and you're just on the wrong end of the phone line. And that is actually what ended up taking down the former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. So those are open questions. Um, We know that now that many of the Democrats are going to be pushing harder even if they didn't manage to find any sort of smoking gun that connects the president with these allegations of collusion with the Russians, they are pushing harder for things like um, Flynn's uh, disclosure forms to be able to get access to classified info. And we know that the Republicans are going to be pushing harder to try to substantiate, excuse me, to try to ferret out where the source of these leaks are. You saw members of that committee grilling Comey, grilling Rogers for and, and trying to even assert or insinuate that maybe it was somebody from the White House or their top uh, surrogates, the Obama White House, excuse me, or their top surrogates that were the, the source of those leaks. So, Can you explain to us what's going on there, you know, the politics of this? Because right from the beginning of the hearing, you had representatives from the two parties seemingly conducting entirely separate inquiries, so far as I could see. <laughs> you know, you had the Democrats on the committee who were interested in Russian inf- interference in last year's election, the extent of it, you know, whether there was any coordination and so forth. And right from the beginning, you had Republicans who are much more interested in finding out, as you say, who might have leaked classified information about Michael Flynn and his meetings with the Russian ambassador to journalists. Why Why this kind of, you know, this, these two tracks? Why can you Can you talk us through that? Sure. Well, let's go back a little bit before this hearing, right? So when the, these um, allegations first started surfacing, you had some pushback from the Trump team. Um, they don't like this. Uh, Trump got up this morning and was tweeting um, before I was awake um, about how uh, this is made up. It's fake news. It's just something the Democrats made up to make him look bad. And it's not the first time he said that. He's been going back weeks and saying that. So when these allegations first started surfacing and some of the members of his administration started being wrapped up in it, he focused on the leaks and he was saying, well, why is this even in the newspapers in the first place? Why why are they figuring this stuff out? This was a the private matter. It's a private matter that led to 
to him asking his national security advisor to resign. But still, he was very upset about, about the leaks. And many members of Congress, like the House Intelligence Committee chief, decided to jump on board with that. And they have been pushing this thing about the leaks. Now, in a way, they're right. It's not legal to leak. If you are in the in the government and you are supposed to be dealing with classified information, you're not supposed to run with the press to the press with that. But it's Washington and leaks kind of happen all the time. So there's most of the Democratic Party, pretty much all the Democratic Party and several Republicans are saying, look, um, it's the substance of the leaks. that's the more troubling thing. But but it, it, this, there's a an impetus and, an, uh, and a reason for the Republicans to kind of close ranks around the president, um, at least in large part to close ranks around him, because they're trying to stop the bleeding. Basically, this is not good um, to have the president uh of the and the leader of their party be under this sort of scrutiny and he's been under it since before day one so um it's it's troubling for them and it's not every single member of the gop that's saying look at the leaks don't look at the the substance of the leaks the leaks are the 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 fact there were leaks were the real crime here but it's a lot of them and you did hear that difference um i suppose the, the the one uh, mitigating factor of that is that you haven't yet heard anybody who's a uh, GOP leader at, at the head of one of these committees saying, and thus we shouldn't be conducting this investigation. What they're saying is, we think the leaks are the problem. Fine, we'll investigate all these points, but it's just going to prove what we've been saying all along, which is that there's nothing there. You're not going to find any evidence to tie the president to the Kremlin. Yeah, I guess that's an important point to reiterate. So far, we don't have any of that, that evidence. Right. Uh, 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 how did you feel that James Comey, Director Comey, came out of the hearing today. I mean, he mentioned at one point, <laughs> I think the investigation <laughs> had been going on since last summer, um, you know, around the time of the Republican National Convention. Right. Is that what you understood him to have meant, that it was the same investigation? Because, you know, if that's the case, then that opens a whole load of questions about what the FBI was up to last year, you know, why he saw fit to mention the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails before the election, but, you know, not this one and, and so forth. What what did you understand him to mean there? Well, his, his I mean, I think that he is looking back, he's, he's tracing a chronology that starts with them starting to put these pieces together last summer. And, and you're right that around the time of the Republican National Convention does seem like it was a very pivotal time um, for a lot of the, the various things that were happening. Of, of course, that is when we started to hear publicly about the fact that these hacks had happened of the Democratic National Committee and of Hillary Clinton's campaign director, chairman, excuse me, Podesta. Um, and then it was in the late summer that you started to hear them, uh, that the intelligence community's assessment started to come out that this is probably the hand of Russia. And then by the time we got into the fall, um, and I believe the first reports of this were December, and then by January, they'd actually put out the report saying that um, we believe that Russia did this with the intention of helping Donald Trump's candidacy and chances for the White House. Um, so uh, all of that together... Um, it, it, it certainly, it, it, it's the chronology in which all these things happen. So that's why Comey's pointing back towards this point. But there were a lot of questions today about, you know, why wasn't the FBI more involved in trying to warn off the DNC? Should you have, if you could go back in time, would you have done this differently? Comey said he would have walked himself to the DNC and tried, tried to bang on the door to, in, to impress upon them how serious all of this was. Um, there's There's a lot of trying to connect the dots here, though, in terms of just the calendar of events and when things happened to get a sense of, you know, how long the intelligence committee has, community has been sure of this and, and, and when things actually started to piece together and whether the, the, the order of events suggests um, that, that there was some sort of coordination here. You heard more than one Democrat on that committee say 
this could all be coincidences or it could be not a coincidence. It's, it's that they are feeling like it stretches the imagination to say all of these different steps, especially those that were happening in the late summer of 2016, um, were just happenstance. Listeners, remember, we want to get you in on this conversation as well. How invested are you in the outcome of the FBI's investigation into how the Russians intervened in our election? What is it you want to know? Why do you want to know that? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And let's go to Kevin in Boston. Kevin, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hey, um, how are you doing, Mr. Wright and Mr. Prudeau? Um, longtime fan of The Economist. I actually have a copy on my bed at the moment. <laughs> Thank you, sir. The Econ- and because The Economist is about the global view, I'm interested in what did Russia do in the investigation and how can that be used as a learning example for other countries and for America in the future? Because we have French elections coming up soon and German elections immediately after that. And the results of those elections will affect American citizens in terms of trade and in terms of foreign relations. And I would like to know what happened in America so that those errors won't happen again in other countries and in America in the future. Thanks for that, Kevin. So, Kevin, can I just take a pass at that before we ask Karen, who's, you know, a former Moscow correspondent, for for her take? (laughs) One of the things that's interesting, I think, looking at European elections at the moment, is that a lot of European countries have seen what happened in America. You know, they've seen the assessment of the American intelligence community that the Russian government did try and meddle in the election last year. We don't know how successful it was, but, you know, clearly there was an attempt to do something. And people are really worried about it. And and as a result of that, I think they're more on their guard than they would have been otherwise. So there's almost been a sort of, you know, demonstration effect. This thing that people weren't paying that much attention to, they're now really very wary of. So in one sense, that's already performed a kind of very helpful, sort of healthy function for European democracies, I think. Uh, If I could challenge you on that, Mr. Prudeau, (laughs) do you believe that citizens in in France and in Germany are being more critical of their news sources? Because I've read in your very paper, actually, that Breitbart is setting up in Europe now beyond what's happening in America. And I wonder if definitive proof or a definitive statement by the FBI might have an effect on European and even American voters. That's interesting. I think it, it it might do. You're right that Breitbart's trying to set up in Europe, and you know that's a that's a concern for some people over here. But all I would say is that things like, for example, in the French election, people are paying a lot of attention now to Marine Le Pen's links with Russia. In particular, there was a bank loan to you know Marine mm-hmm. Le Pen is the candidate of the, the Front National, which is the kind of far right party in French politics. That party took out a bank loan from a, from a Russian bank. Um, uh, some time ago. There's been a lot of attention paid to that. I was talking to one of our correspondents who who just come back from Germany, who said that you know people in Germany there, the elections in Germany as well, are really paying a lot of attention to um, Russian, you know, anything lo- that looks like a kind of Russian attempt to meddle with their election. And people are on much kind of higher alert than they would have been um, than, than they would have been otherwise. And we might right, get thank to, you very much, sir. Thanks, Cameron. And we might get to this in a little more detail later in the show, too, when we start talking about Russia's relationship to the far right, both here and, and, and in Europe. But uh, one thing I want to ask, Karun, is that uh, 
one thing that 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 the FBI director was very clear about in the in the hearings was that this is something they expect to be an ongoing behavior. This is not something that has happened, but something that is going to continue happening in terms of the Russian interference in the election. Yes. And the FBI director was talking about the U.S. when he talked about that. He said it's going to happen in 2018 and 2020, those being the next two major election cycles that uh, elect offices at the federal level to kind of, you know, scare Congress a little bit because that's their election cycles, too. Um, but but yeah, he was asked about, you know, is Europe also a concern? It's not the first time that um, members of the administration and the intelligence community and Congress have said, yeah, of course, we're concerned about what happens in Europe, because you start to um, see if you start to see parties that have affinity towards Russia make gains, and you start to see the challenges with the, the, the fundamental bonds of um, the EU, of NATO, of all of our policies and stances that are actually opposing Russia right now. All of a lot of our sanctions policy, a lot of our other policies, really depend on coordination with Europe. And if you start to have countries in Europe go towards a more pro-Moscow stance, it really does uh, throw everything out of whack. Let's bring in Brad from Cincinnati, Ohio. Brad, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just making the comment that, or the observation, really, that you don't have to be a highly trained journalist to have common sense and to look at the fact that this investigation by the FBI has been going on since July, meaning that this investigation was launched by the Obama administration and his Justice Department against a rival political candidate. And that's very suspicious on its face, not to mention the fact that we know that the CIA, probably the FBI, have intelligence capabilities where they can put American fingerprints on hacking attempts and make it look like foreign powers were doing the hacking. So I find that also suspicious. And the fact is, Michael, Michael Flynn, General Flynn, was, was a U.S. citizen when he was when he was uh, wiretapped, to use a phrase. And so we know that there was some, you know, wiretapping going on. So why is it such a stretch for the media and, and people in the Democrat Party to, to, to believe that, that Trump himself, his, his, the Trump Tower, his associates, and, and the like, were, were wiretapped? Um, and it might not be a don't, – don't get caught up in the word wiretap, but I'm talking about surveillance. And, and I thought it was leaked out that there was a FISA warrant for one of Trump's servers. Is that not true? So we're going to have to take a break. But, Brad, you stay with us, and then we're going to try to get respond to those after a break. Uh, we're talking with Kar- with Karun Dim- excuse me, Karun, I'm sorry, with Karun Dimarajan, political reporter for The Washington Post, who uh, was at today's House hearings on the FBI investigation into Russian interference. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for joining us. And I'm John Prudhoe from The Economist. And just before we went to the break, we were talking with Brad in, in Cincinnati. And Brad, I hope you're still there. Are you still there, Brad? I am still here. Hey, that's good news. Yes. I'm glad. Thanks for sticking with us while, uh, while we went to our break. So you had a couple of questions, if, if, I, if I get it right. Number one, why is it a stretch for people to believe that President Trump may have been surveilled in, in some sense? I I'm not sure that it is a, a stretch, except for we don't have evidence. I mean, I'm prepared to believe pretty much anything if somebody can show me credible evidence. And what we haven't seen is is credible evidence of that. I would certainly change my mind if evidence were, were forthcoming. Um, and the other thing that you make a point, I, I think it's really interesting. So this investigation seems to have been going on in some form since last July. And you can cut that two ways. Either you can say, you know, it's investigations have been going on for a long time. And yet, you know, apparently nothing's been found or, or you know, nothing has been found that could lead to to a prosecution. Or you could say, well, hang on, this investigation's been going on since last summer. That's kind of a long time. They must be doing something, right? So I I don't know quite what to conclude from the length of the investigation. Can I jump in there for a Yeah, second? Karen, go for it. Yeah, sorry, just because I, I think it's interesting to take this um, th- this July date because certainly he's saying that they've been investigating. Remember, it's not investigating Russia writ large since July. It's investigating the potential ties with Trump since since July and Russia. If you listen to Devin Nunes, who's the head of the House Intelligence Committee, any time you ask him, oh, are you starting this investigation? Where is it going? He will say, we have been looking at Russia for years. Most people in the intelligence community will say, we have been looking at Russia for years and the hacking and everything else. It seems like with this July date, they're saying that they started to see things that made them start to turn towards Trump in July. And that does square with what we've been hearing as far as the chronology of these allegations. Granted, they are allegations that came up of these contacts and, and you know, things the president was saying, the president to be at that point was saying on the stump. Um, so the July date is important, but it's not the only date. It's not like the world woke up in July and said, okay, we're going to look at Russia and we're going to look at Trump and we were never looking at Russia before. This is, they do look at these things fairly continuously, just not at Trump continuously because, because they weren't, because it wasn't the, 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 the central focus, Russia and cyber hacking was. Um, Brad, you brought up a few other points too, just about, um, you know, um, uh, whether that I think you said something about the CIA being able to put you know marks on on things, there, and I just wanted to comment on that because um, there's a lot of speculation and counter speculation, speculation to the counter speculation that's going on right now. You even heard members of the committee today speculating that maybe the press reports are all based on Russian operatives being the people that are whispering in our ears and giving us the stories that they think we shouldn't be writing and might be wrong. I mean, you can take this to its logical extent and and logical limit, and you can actually go past that limit if you want to when you're talking about espionage and counterintelligence and all of those things. So, yeah, is it a possibility this was all a made-up thing from the Obama administration? It's not possible to say 100% no, but you look at the characters, you look at the history, FBI director is a pretty independent actor there. That's why they get their office positions for as long as they do. They're supposed to go past the end of an administration into the next one. Comey's a member of the Republican Party, and he was getting a lot more pushback from Democrats last year than Republicans because the focus was on the Clinton emails. So you can say that this was a thing that was always being divined and crafted from um, basically the, the you know origins that are a little bit conspiratorial. 
but and and no one can probably ever fully disprove you until the absolute facts of this investigation do come out if they do but it's not the most likely explanation um given everything we know about who's involved how long th- this country has been looking at Russia as an adversary and when these things started to be able th- these these events involving members of Trump's circle started to become known Brad, I hope that goes some way towards yeah. answering your question. Karen, I've got uh, another one for you, if that's okay. What happens mm-hmm. now? I mean, the FBI, Director Comey said, will take its time, its investigators won't rush the job, but at some point it'll either have to bring charges or say, there's nothing to see here, right? Or just write a report and say, this is everything that we learned over the last very, very long stretch of time that, you know, we were talking about this and you were sitting on the edges of your chairs looking at this and here's our recommendation for what we know. I mean, look, I this is this is I guess a little bit of a dramatic counterexample to bring up, but think about the Benghazi commission, right? That that committee went for a long time and at the end they wrote a very long report in which they excoriated um, members of the military, Secretary Clinton at the time, and still said that they didn't actually recommend anything, you know, really terrible happen. You look at the Clinton email investigation, that was the administration, right? And it still ended with, we didn't like this, but we're not going to recommend charges. So it's not always nothing to see here, or we're going to take someone to court. It can end up really in the middle. And everybody says, well, okay, now we know things, but what do we do with them? And then maybe nothing happens. But it really depends. I mean, this is this is everyone's trying to predict what's going to happen at the end of the road, right? Republicans are predicting that there is not going to be any evidence to substantiate any sort of real collusion or connections that are are troublesome between the Trump circles and the and the Kremlin. And Democrats are saying, "Okay, well, we don't know if we'll get there, but we need to keep looking because there's circumstantial evidence and that's the stuff that we've been talking about these you know, suspicious meetings that were not disclosed and the the, the the chronology in which they happened and the proximity to the president and of, of the people that were carrying out these meetings and, and transactions. Um, does that all lead somewhere? No one's saying, yes, it does yet. But Democrats are saying we think it could and Republicans are saying we don't think it's going to. So you've been following this story really closely and, you know, there are all kinds of twists. There's so much detail at times, it's hard to keep it all, all in order. You know, these kind of salacious revelations that may or not be true oh, yeah. about contained in dossiers. That, dossiers that, you know, people, are, right, are unsubstantiated, and, you know, yes. <laughs> exactly. Accusations of criminal activity or, you know, what the president's just tweeted and so on. You know, it, it, it's obviously a kind of extraordinary story. Um, but I'm wondering, there is, you know, is there something deeper that animates... Some of the kind of, you know, conspiratorial thinking that that you see, you know, kind of both on the left and on on the right on this. You know, there seems a willingness on kind of both sides in in some sense to kind of believe something kind of completely extraordinary. That's a question about the human condition, I think. I mean, everybody loves a good spy drama, right? I mean, why is The Americans a popular show that people watch even though it's 25 years after the Cold War ended? I mean, like, do we we like to, there's a fantasy and a drama and all of that stuff in this, which is why which is why we're, you know, so many people are are gripped by this story, whether it's on either side. It involves politics. It involves potential espionage. It involves secrets. It involves a, you know, it's 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 like a summer blockbuster movie in a weird way that's moving at a lot slower and may not have a big final scene at the end, right? So, um, it's it's certainly in that way very very gripping, and more gripping than some of the, you know, 
I guess more there, there's a question of what we want to focus on here, right? I mean, there's there's uh, many other news stories in the world and in the country that matter. We're talking about you. We're just speaking about healthcare. You know, there are. Um, there are crises happening in various parts of the world that are involve, you know, very depressing topics like famine and war, and this, that's just not as fun as this is. This is fulfilling a little bit of our, you know, secret. I don't know. <laughs> well, Desire is to like live in a, a dramatic, you know, world and, and things like that. So. Not to mention that there's Supreme Court hearing going on or Supreme Court nomination. Oh, that's true. Right? What? <laughs> Just so happens. No, for the. But, well, that's gonna. They, they get four days to do that, and this was a one. Well, it's actually not a one-time deal. We're gonna get to have uh, phase two on um, a week from tomorrow because uh, some former spy chiefs are going to be coming back to Capitol Hill to testify about what they used to be involved with. So. Well, I want to take us in a slightly different direction uh, for the rest of the hour. And, and while your calls continue to come in, again, we want to hear from you, everyone. What do you think about these, these, these House investigations and what do you want in the FBI investigation? Rather, where do you want to see it go? What do you want to find out? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. But here's something I'm interested in that did not come up in, the, in today's hearing. And, and isn't really part of the probe, but I think is super important. And that's the broader relationship between Russia and the far right of both the U.S. and European politics. And that's what's piqued my interest. Because so uh, to, just to set this up, here's the thing. Ever since the, quote, basket of deplorables conversation from, from the campaign, it's been really hard to have a meaningful conversation about some of the far right movements and ideologies that are really at the core of the Trump's coalition. And I, I think we have to do that. And so for at least for this moment, can I, I think let's agree to separate out conversation about millions of voters who chose Trump for a host of reasons and some of the ideologies and movements that sought out his voters. And just to name a few of them under the, the sort of big idea of Steve Bannon, um, first as his in his role as the publishing, publishing mind behind Breitbart, and now as Trump's chief political strategist was to kind of create a unified political platform for, you know, old and new school white separatists, for one, the far end of the religious right, and then just hard line nationalists who, who want sort of a return to a pre-Cold War world order. And one thing that draws all of those people together is that they all have a real love for and developing relationship with Vladimir Putin's, Putin's Russia. And so our next guest is Casey Michelle, who has studied that relationship. He's a journalist who covers Russia and the former Soviet states. Uh, earlier this month, he authored a report for the group People for the American Way called The Rise of the Traditionalist Internationalist, How the American Right Learned to Love Moscow in the Era of Trump. Welcome, Casey. Thanks for having me. So we just want to add your perspective to this, uh, or I particularly want to add your perspective to this. We want to hear what callers have to say about it, too. And, uh, and, and let's start with Russia itself. You write that under Putin, Russia has sort of cultivated this, this image globally as the defender of traditional Western values against a kind of corrupted liberal Western world. Tell us about that image as you see it. What's the pose um, how is it to be seen here and and in Russia? So I think we can 
just dial it back for a second, back to 2012 when Putin returned to the presidency for his first third term. Now, he was coming in with an economy that was, uh, at least relative to his first two terms, stagnating. It was flatlining. And he was casting about for a different means of legitimacy. Again, he is going to be up for re-election in 2018. He looks like he's going to be in power through at least 2024. So he needed another means uh, of consolidating power and support domestically. And one of the primary areas that he pursued after returning to the presidency was creating this image both domestically and internationally of Russia as this bulwark of what people have called traditionalism, traditional values. So these are uh, anti-gay, uh, pieces of anti-gay legislation, uh, anti-abortion legislation, as we saw just a few weeks ago, uh, a repeal and, and pulling back of uh, uh, domestic abuse provisions and, and penalties. It was a whole uh, hodgepodge of uh, not only legislation, but a, a placement or an attempt to place Moscow uh, internationally as the primary area, primary center, primary geopolitical pole of conservatism internationally. And he's found uh, uh, welcoming audiences both in Europe and in the U.S., which is what my report tried to point out. I'm sure some of the listeners are more than familiar with relations that Russia has with European members of the far right. What my report tried to look at and tried to outline was the uh, parallel uh, creation of both networks of, of support, financial, rhetorical, organizational support here in the U.S., all of whom ended up supporting President Trump, all of whom were thrilled just as the Kremlin seems to have been with President Trump's election. Let's start with, let's just try to tick off some of those groups just briefly because um, we want to be able to get to the callers. But the, starting with, with, this, with the sort of new version of white separatists, what is the relationship there? Why are they into Russia and Putin and why is Putin into them? So there is a, a theory within uh, 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 kind of the higher echelons of the Kremlin that one of the primary drivers of the dissolution of the Soviet Union 25, 26 years ago now was the U.S. This was something the U.S. was pursuing for years and years and decades and decades. It's not exactly true. One of George H.W. Bush's final major speeches in the Soviet region was calling for a, uh, a, a movement to uh, keep the Soviet Union intact. It was not a call to separatists. However, there are voices within the Kremlin that would, um, uh, how to phrase this, enjoy seeing something of a reprisal of the Soviet Union's breakup here in the U.S. Now, this appeals, again, to white uh, ethnostate secessionists, people like Richard Spencer, people like Matthew Heimbach, names that may be familiar to those who have followed the far right or maybe not even necessarily are familiar with. They came up a lot during the campaign. Absolutely. Alt-right. Yeah, these are people who uh, gained uh, significant prominence due to their support for uh, now President Trump during the campaign. And they perceive Russia as the primary uh, international benefactor, uh, someone or, or some government that can support their end goals of breaking up the U.S. in pursuit of a whites-only state. Failing that, they would like to see a return to a white supremacist state here in the U.S. They perceive Russia as a government that has returned ethnic or racial whites to supremacy in a multiracial federation, something they like to see here in the U.S., at least in whole or in part. And when, when you're talking about, t- quote, ties to them, what are we talking about? Is there actual money? Have we established that there's financial support? Or we, what, what are we talking about? Sure. So as it pertains to ethnic white supremacists or secessionists, I should say, there hasn't been any hard and fast financial support that we've seen thus far. We do know that Moscow has hosted a couple uh, secessionist conferences over the past past few years where California and Texas secessionists have attended. They've funded that uh, uh, in part. They've helped fly the Texas secessionists there. 
thus far, we haven't seen anything quite like the uh, bank loans that Russia has provided to groups like uh, the National Front in France. We haven't seen that crop up. However, we have seen uh, conferences, again, organized in Russia in which uh, white supremacists from the U.S. as well as from Europe uh, have attended. There were plans for another conference just a few months ago that was postponed, although as far as I'm aware, that's still to be scheduled moving forward. However, the links don't stop there. There's an individual some of the listeners may be familiar with named Alexandra Dugin, who has been uh, Mm -hmm. portrayed incorrectly as Putin's brain or Putin's rest Putin. Uh, He's not quite of that magnitude. However, he has been a central character in uh, organizing American white ethnostate secessionists. One of his books is also taught in uh, uh, numerous Russian military academies, and Putin's foreign policy has just so happened to follow uh, Dugin's uh, geopolitical proselytizing as well. So to uh, back to the uh, original question, no hard and fast financial links, however, rhetorical organizational support uh, uh, continuing for the foreseeable future. Karen, you were laughing when uh, when Casey mentioned uh, Alexander Dugan. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. It, it, I guess one question for you is, you know, how much does the, I, so I, this matters to me, it matters to Casey. Well, how, how, you, you were a Moscow correspondent. It's reminding me, yeah. <laughs> how, how much does this ring true to you? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it uh, certainly does ring true just about elements that exist in Russia. I guess the only thing that I'd say is that, um, you know, there. I mean, when when they have these these rallies of the the more pro um, pro Rus, which is you know the original like I don't want to use terms that have you know political swing, but I guess the people that think that they are the the true original you know white bread Russians and and, and the, of of Belarus and Ukraine and everything like that. There, there's a lot of people that turn out for those rallies in Moscow, and it's a little bit daunting. Uh, and yet at the same time, I mean, it's. Um, it's 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 weird. You you use you, you Russia is 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 not as ethnically variegated as the United States is certainly because the United States is a melting pot and Russia is you know that still ethnically based countries. But you go a little bit deeper into Russia and Russians don't look very white. You know they look more Asian and and it, you still have many 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 people from different um, former Soviet republics that that live there. Um, who are dealing with the brunt of this? Basically, there's there's definitely racism of its own forms that is very very palpable in Russia. So these are, I, I think I giggled at the name just because I remember that it's you say that name and and a lot of people just kind of you know have a reaction to that name even in Russia because he, he symbolizes something. Um, but yeah, that's uh, Russia is definitely headed in um, the the. There's been a lot of rallying around the flag pride that is also fed into this in the last few years just because Putin has very successfully painted this picture of the world's against us, you know, and we have to stick together and be proud of ourselves. And that narrative is something that he is traced back through, you know, the quote-unquote glory days of the Cold War when he's kind of chosen the Stalin era, which, you know, has its own problems there, and and chosen to, to paint this um, trajectory all the way going back to earlier origins of Russia as well, and, and it ties in with the Orthodox Church. So. Listeners, we're talking about Russia's relationship to the far right, and before that, we're talking about uh, the House Intelligence Committee hearing on Russia's intervention in our elections. We want to hear from you, 844-745-TALK, that's 844 844- Seven four five eight two five five, or tweet us using indivisible radio hashtag. We'll be right back. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
from WNYC Radio. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm John Prudeau here from The Economist. Kai, what are, what are our callers saying about what they make of all of this? We've got some calls coming in. We're going we're gonna to bring some on the board. We remind everybody we're talking about the relationship between Russia and the far right in, US, in the U.S. and in Europe and about the House Intelligence Committee hearing today on Russian interference with the election. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And John, we will now go to Oscar in Atlanta, Georgia. Oscar? Welcome to Indivisible. You are on the air. Thank you. How are you? We're well. Have you been? What are your thoughts on the on either the intelligence committee hearing or on what Casey's telling us about the the, the Trump about the Russia's relationship to the far right in the U.S. Well, I am very puzzled because as an immigrant in the U.S., I still have a lot of doubts about why so many people still you know. 25 years ago, or more, during the Cold War, the Russians were the biggest enemy of the U.S. And there was a lot of fear about the Russians. And it seems to me as if nowadays many people rather have a smoke screen in their face in order not to see uh, what's going on and not to take the threat of um, the, the Russian meddling into our elections and uh, possible allegations of um, the, the relationship of our current uh, House, White House with the Russians. And, of course, we know that that is uh, associated with white supremacy and also other issues that uh, affect uh, a large group of the population. And we are, a, we are a country of immigrants, and we are what we are because of the immigrant population that has come to this country to provide an input and to provide a, a, lot, of, um, in, a lot of intelligent uh, uh, outputs. And, and, so when, and so how do you feel about what happened today? I mean, did you, did you watch the hearings? What Yes, and uh, I am very surprised that there are two that are basically divided, that uh, the Republicans only want to see about wiretapping, and it doesn't seem that they are interested in looking at the reality. It's like somebody mentioned earlier in the show, they're trying to stop the bloodshed because they are going in the partisan lines, and they don't want to really have what's going on with the Russians come out. And it seems like the a large number of the population who supports the Republican Party are willing to accept that it's not happening because it doesn't go in the party lines. And I am upset because I feel that um, it's, not a, it's not a search for um, the real truth of what's going on, but it's basically to just justify things politically. So thank you for that, Oscar. We yet another person who uh, sort of shares what John saw earlier, of two totally different investigations uh, unfolding at once. Casey, Going back to your report, what, why does this matter, by the way? You know, um, it didn't come up in the hearings. It's not, that's, again, that's not what the hearings are about. But, uh, you know, we, we were talking in earlier in the show uh, about why we're all obsessed with the, the links to Russia in general. And what does that say about our, uh, our political culture? Is it because we just love spy stories? Or, but for you, what, why does this particular link, this link to the far right, why does that matter? So this matters for any host of reasons. Uh, uh, but I think the primary one that uh, at least interested me in exploring this was the creation of uh, transatlantic networks, uh, alliances, organizations, conferences. This is a phenomenon that we've seen play out, not again only in the far right, but again, uh, but also as it pertains to recent elections, uh, 
uh, in Europe and then again with, uh, with Donald Trump. And, but in the background uh, to these far right or, or, or rightist uh, elections that we've seen recently have been these growing uh, networks that have been playing out with one primary poll organizing them uh, in Russia. A couple of years ago, in, in early 2015, there was a, a conference organized in St. Petersburg that was one of the largest far right gatherings that Europe has seen in years. We had a couple of Americans who uh, ended up attending it, uh, a gentleman named Jared Taylor, who recorded robocalls on behalf uh, of Donald Trump, uh, and another gentleman named Sam Dixon, who's a former KKK lawyer. Uh, at the time, it was, it was tossed to the side as nothing but a fringe element. But looking back on it two years, uh, two years ago, uh, it's easy to see that this planted something of a seed. This uh, represented some kind of not simply fringe organization, but something of a portent of what was to come. It was ignored at the time. It was dismissed at the time. But looking back at it 24 months later, it's easy to see how this network, this organization, and this rhetoric especially ended up growing into some kind of uh, a political movement, political organization, and at the end of the day, a political victory for Donald Trump here in the U.S. Well, go ahead, Garn. Like Sorry, I was going to say, it's in, since, we're, since we're talking about both of these things at the same time, I just want to interject two quick points. Um, one of which is that, you know, as far as Russia's investment in U.S. politics goes, it's not just limited to the far right. It's also parts of the far left. And I think that's true in Europe as well. I mean, you have to remember that Russia has taken pains to try to make contacts with people that are anti-fracking, you know, for for example, which is not something that most right, um, you know, right-leaning politicians are, will support that sort of any sort of investment in digging out more uh, oil and gas resources out of the ground. The left is usually opposed to that. Russia is has it's, it's been shown that there are connections between Russians and that movement to try to basically keep that those resources off the market. And and Russia does that in ways that are strategic for what its interests are, both you know political and economic. It's not always just about kind of putting their eggs in one basket, which is with the more white supremacist leaning types of groups. And then also, I just wanted to draw a distinction because you know Oscar did call and talk about the actual uh, people in the. The, the members that were on the panel at the hearing, which is that when we talk about these sorts of far right, far left, I think there's a really, we just, it's obvious, but draw the distinction between the people who are in Congress and the people who are maybe in the country that are, you know, that are leaning and sympathetic towards these sorts of messages, messaging that's potentially coming from or being influenced by Moscow. I think you have maybe one, well, one, Dana Rohrbacher is pretty sympathetic to Moscow, but beyond him, really maybe not very many other members of Congress who would ever say, oh, it's because I'm aligned with Russia on this. Like it, They are in a competition to, who, to, to show who can be more tough on Russia. They are rallying around Trump, but it's not like they're rallying around Putin right now. And, and, I, and I know that these, you're talking about a you know Trump's coalition. There's been oodles of reporting into how variegated that is. But just, you know, when we're talking about this issue, I think it's important to separate out far right, far left in Congress versus far right, far right, far left in the rest of the country. Actually, two very different things. Just to build off Karen's point just now, which uh, uh, as it pertains to uh, Russian cultivation of members of the far left here in the U.S., uh, again, as some of the listeners may be aware, there's a very famous uh, uh, video or or clip or photo of Mike Flynn, uh, former uh, national security advisor, sitting with President Putin December 2015 at the RT Gala in Moscow. What a lot of people don't notice is that Jill Stein is also sitting at that table, Green mm-hmm. Party candidate in 2016. Now, yeah. Jill Stein has not said who paid for the trip. She said uh, that it wasn't Russia. She turned down the money. She hasn't said who paid for it. Uh, she did select, however, a vice presidential candidate who said that the downing of flight MH17, which was the passenger airliner uh, over Ukraine, that was down in 2015, he said that was a false flag attack made to uh, uh, make Russia look bad. So just to build off Karen's point right there. <laughs> Let, let's bring in uh, more callers here. Catherine in St. Louis, Missouri. Catherine, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Thanks. Well, I think that based on everything that we know, and in addition to 
James Comey's testimony today, there certainly is, um, to anyone, enough evidence that something is going on. And where where we lack information is from um, a transparent president who has not released his tax returns, which I strongly suspect would be very damaging to him. I think it would reinforce all of the things that we are learning and that we know and would seem pretty obvious to me and actually pretty obvious to everyone with whom I speak. So my question is, at what point do we have, does the evidence support um, the articles of impeachment? And do you think that the House of Representatives is capable of taking that leap or what would it take for them to make that leap? Well, two separate things here. So, and first off, to be clear, Catherine, just so you know, I mean, it, 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 an article impeachment only means nothing about the the future of Trump's presidency, other than other than the fact that he's been impeached. But but let's let's Karen, let's ask you about the sort of this financial entanglement piece of it, which we're getting a lot of calls about. That's what seems to be yeah. a lot of people are interested in is is the financial the piece returns, of it right. and the tax yeah. returns. Well. Um, let me just say, I uh, the tax returns can show a lot. It can show charitable donations. It can show write-offs. It can show where you earned income. It can show stuff about your beneficiaries. It can show if you earned money overseas. That makes it more complicated. I had to do that when I was a foreign correspondent. But um, it's not like it's not a guarantee. That's the thing. If there's something shady in the tax returns, that will certainly lead to more investigation and more probing. Um, if there is to to assume that the tax return will automatically reveal the smoking gun that I think a lot of people are hoping is there may not be a wish that actually comes true. There is not necessarily a line item that says, you know, and Trump got this this lump sum of money from this person who actually happens to be Putin's right hand guy at the Kremlin. Right. It's, it's not going to be that easy. So I'm not saying that there's nothing in the tax returns. I have not seen the tax returns. I do not know. There may be something in it that then raises questions that then leads to more information that does lead to some sort of connection that we haven't been able to substantiate and wouldn't without that clue. But there also it might not as well. So it's not a, a given. Um, and, you know, your, your caller's other question about impeachment, I mean, there has to be some sort of a crime that, that, or some, some sort of a, 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 an actual bad thing that happens, you know, breaking. Um, a lot of people have pointed at the emoluments clause. A lot of people have pointed at, you know, if there is some sort of criminal activity that goes on that that might, you know, say, OK, well, now we can talk about impeachment. But impeachment also um, and I'm not an expert on that part of it at all. I've never covered impeachment. <laughs> but it also well, it does I can say I. Right. But well, it has to be something really bad that goes against, you know, what the the, the president's responsibilities are under the Constitution. Um, it may be more specific than that. And I will try to read up on it for the next time we talk. But um, it also has to you got to get the votes. you got to get the votes. It has to happen in Congress. And right now, I don't think the Republican Party is sounding like they're very keen on taking anything that's been put out there so well, far and going down that road. And, and the Democrats the cannot point. do it in the minority. And this is the point on the impeachment and a lot of stuff is that the politics is what matters right now. This yes. is a democracy. We're debating these issues. And it's and the real question is the politics. And I, and I guess I kind of return to something you said previously about Russia and their behavior and their motivations. You know, that, so that's the question of motivations here. Whatever it is you're concerned about, whether it's the far right like me, whether it's the financial entanglements, understanding where Russia is coming from in this process. And, and I, I guess I'd love to get both of you to speak to that what if if it is only about it's instrumental not ideological is 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 what i heard you say 
what is what are the likely instrumental ends here? Um, Casey, you go first. No, I'll, I'll, I'll take well, this. I mean, I think one of the the <laughs> primary, and okay, I think this is the, building off the question is 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 one of the the, the primary phrases we've seen from uh, in describing President Putin for the past few years is that he is a master tactician but a terrible strategist. Now, I think that even though they ended up getting their man in the White House, even though Donald Trump ended up being elected, they didn't realize a that he was going to be elected. It took them as much a surprise as it uh, was anyone here in the U.S. But b that he wasn't actually going to be the man that they could pull the strings behind. You know, we've seen uh, today's the two month anniversary of his inauguration. The sanctions are no closer to being eased. The U.S. is no closer to recognizing the Crimean annexation. There are no policy prescriptions moving forward that look like uh, they will benefit Russia, at least in the short term. Again, we have no idea what the next uh, three and a half years are going to hold. Uh, if anything, the trajectory right now is that, hey, maybe at least as it pertains to foreign policy in the former Soviet space, something of a traditional Republican president. That's not to say Georgia or Ukraine. Ukraine will be joining NATO anytime soon, but it's also not to say that Russia will have a have a free hand that they may have expected uh, in the post-Soviet space. Uh, and in that sense, just to get back to the report as it pertains to ties with the far right, I think they're going to continue because I think they are not going to be satisfied with what they have in the White House right now as of March 20th, 2017. And so they're going to continue building those links, continue building those organizations and networks uh, in order to continue the pressure uh, on, on the executive branch here in the U.S. And, and something Casey said just reminded me of one of the funnier things that I once heard an analyst tell me about Putin, which is that everybody else, is, it's like everybody's in the world, all the major leaders are sitting around a poker table, and everyone else is playing poker, but Putin's playing blackjack and he's hitting on 18, which I'm not sure if I believe that, but if you know anything about table games, that kind of gives you a sense of that whole, you know, not not a master strategist. But I think that just, it's taking one step further than what Casey was saying. You can hear every time in the last few years, Putin has spoken, or Lavrov, who's his foreign minister, has spoken, or one of the other top deputies, there is a chip on their shoulder that you can really hear. Remember, Russia in its history was used to being the big dog and the big player in their corner of the world, right? And for a very long time, most of the 20th century, they were the other major player in, in town when we're talking about the entire globe, other than the United States. They want to be that again. And they a, a lot of what they do is... This is very, very painting with a broad brush, but a lot of what they do is geared towards that resurgence, that national pride, that knowing that they can be in charge. And the one country that's really keeping them from doing that is the United States. So, you know, Russia has, does not have the resources and the strength. If you look at what it's been doing in, in Europe and in, in the states along the border, do they have the resources and the strength to go and take over countries and just, you know, refashion them the way, I guess you say, can say, the building of the Soviet Union happened? No, they don't. They try to weaken people, right? And as they weaken those people that they consider potentially a threat or potentially getting too close or too much NATO encroachment or what have you, right? So it's the same sort of deal. It's the exact same sort of tactics. It's just that the one place that we're easiest to meddle with is through our election system. And, and so I'm, that's overly yeah. simplifying things, right? But it it does raise Russia up on the balance of who's stronger, who's you know has the moral high ground, who has just the influence high ground in the right. world, which really matters for Russia. And democracy is the one thing that we try to promote, right? And if they can cut that under, undercut that a little bit, then they kind of win in that balance game. Uh, so I want to. We, we're running out of time, and I want to try to squeeze in at least one or two more callers. Let's go to Bill in Auburn, Alabama. Bill, how you doing? Welcome to Invisible. You're on the air. Fine, fine. I get lots of publications, and several of them are religious publications. And one was uh, the Decision Magazine from the Billy Graham 
And they've been uh, touting Putin like he's the white, great white hope for some time, even before the Sochi Olympics. <laughs> and so it's very troubling. Uh, and that bothers that, you. know, that bothers me tremendously. And one other thing, when, when Trump was uh, in the debate with Hillary, I think in Hempstead, New York, he, he literally encouraged Russia to to hack Hillary's emails. And if you look in any uh, uh, law dictionary, that falls under the heading of aiding and abetting. When you encourage or, or promote the interests of your enemy, and, and that, of course, is an aspect of treason. Well, I, I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves on what what on the law here. For none of us are lawyers, but that I know of. But Bill, let me ask you: Are you? You said you get a lot of uh, publications that come that, that involve faith. Are are you a Christian? Is, is that part of your politics? Yes, I'm a very conservative Christian, but I'm also progressive. You know, I believe in holding on to good and growing and and constantly fighting evil. Uh, I just uh, I've seen these publications and the uh, you know his anti-gay stance and things like that and a lot of it I just feel like are a backlash. Uh, mm. You know the the Southern Baptist Convention for one. You know they were actually for legalized abortion in 1970. They were for the environment, but then you had the Bob Jones case and you Bill, had blacks. You know, Bill, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you on the history because we're running out of time, and I want to quickly get Casey. Just we have less than a minute. The religious right is also a big part of of the tie to, to Russia. Yeah, Bill, I think you're hitting the nail on the head right there. You're uh, tapping into a trend that we've seen develop over the past few years uh, among uh, U.S. Christian fundamentalists that are suddenly looking to Moscow, Putin especially, as this lion of Christianity, as uh, American Family Association's Brian Fisher memorably called it. He is their pole. He is the model they would like to see in the U.S. Thanks to Casey Michelle, we've been discussing his report, The Rise of the Traditionalist Traditionalist International, How the American Right Learned to Love Moscow in the Era of Trump. And thanks to Washington Post reporter Karen Dimarajan, who has been in the hearings from the House Intelligence Committee today. We Tomorrow on Indivisible, you will hear from Brian, host Brian Lehrer, uh, who will talk to Washington Post columnist Margaret Sullivan about how the Trump administration rewards journalists for positive coverage. And the former attorney general under George W. Bush, Judge Alberto Gonzalez, unpacks how the Gorsuch hearings and the Comey testimony are testing the norms in American politics, security, and justice. I'm Kai Wright. I'm John Pritta. Talk to you next week. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.